Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I am Buzz Eisenberg. And last Sunday, I attended a event at College Church here in Northampton. I had noticed the uh, advertisement for an event regarding uh, reparations, and I noticed that uh, Representative Lindsay Sabadosa was one of the speakers, and Elise Feely from Forbes Library was one of the speakers, and these are two really knowledgeable, smart people, and I wanted to hear them. There were other speakers as well. Um, and so I went to College Church, and I was delighted and informed and found the entire uh, event both moving and educational and inspiring. And I'm so pleased that we can have with us in the studio today Representative Lindsay Sabadosa. We should first say, good morning, Buzz. Good morning. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I think I missed that part of the, part of the show. Oh, goodness. Oh, well. But hopefully, <laughs> hopefully we, will, we will do a little better here with Representative... It, it is Friday. Representative, Friday. Representative Sabadosa. So uh, I was... Uh, I, I'm sometimes amazed at how ignorant I am about some things. I am. But I did not know a fact that you spoke about in your talk, Representative Sabidosa, which was that 12 United States presidents, 12, were enslavers, owned slaves. And I believe you said that eight of them owned slaves while they were in the White House. That is true. So when uh, Governor Ron DeSantis says, well, slavery has nothing to do with American history, I mean, I am outraged, but now I'm more outraged. And I, I think these were facts that uh, I think need to be more part of the fabric of what we teach kids and what we learn and appreciate ourselves. So... I assume you did a fair amount of research uh, for your talk, and I was wondering what you learned in preparing for those remarks that really stays with you. So interesting. Well, first of all, good morning to both of you. Uh, good morning. Good morning, because Dan's here too. Um, uh, good morning. And I uh, actually, this talk came out of what I've been reading at night. <laughs> um, and so uh, a few years ago, we went to Gettysburg, and we visited um, the bookshop there, which I think is always important to do when you're visiting any historic site, visiting the bookshop. And uh, I picked up this book by Marie Jenkins Schwartz called "The Ties That Bind," uh, "The Ties That Bound," rather, um, which seemed really interesting. It was about three of the first first ladies and the slaves that they owned, and I knew almost nothing about this. The nothing. first. First ladies, yes, and the slaves they owned, exactly. So uh, Martha Washington, Martha Washington, and then it. So the book then also talked about Thomas Jefferson, though of course Thomas Jefferson wasn't married. So it talked about his daughters when he was president. He wasn't married. It talked about his daughters and the slaves that they owned while he was in the White House. Um, and then it went on to talk about Dolly Madison, who is a really fascinating case because Dolly Madison grew up as a Quaker and as the talk on Sunday revealed Quakers for the most part did not believe in slavery. It was um, very frowned upon and you could be thrown out of the church. But despite her upbringing, um, when she got married uh, and then married James Madison, she was married twice. Uh, she owned a great deal of slaves. And in fact, 
uh, what received a lot of criticism because unlike George Washington, who was famous for freeing his slaves upon his death, to be clear, he only freed no, he his. Free, he, I think, didn't he leave them to his wife? I mean, he they were property. freed and he, his slaves, but not her hers, slaves. Oh, so she continued to own because slaves. Because she was married before, and so the slaves were passed down through her. So only a very small portion of the slaves were actually freed upon his death. As property. As property, yes. Dolly Madison, it was expected that James Madison would do the same, and there's a lot of intrigue as to whether he did do that in a will somewhere. The slaves thought that he was going to, but Dolly Madison did not free anybody. In fact, Dolly Madison had a lot of financial problems later in life and ended up selling off a lot of her slaves and breaking apart a lot of families. Uh, it was really extraordinarily tragic. It is astounding that we sit here and talk about, as is necessary, I think, people selling people as property to raise money. I mean, it's just, it, it, I mean, when you talk about uh, slavery and what it, chattel slavery, what it really was, it just makes you want to gag. And and when you think about it, too, not only were they selling what they considered property, they were also selling their relatives, because when you start to follow those stories, and it's everyone, I think, knows about the Thomas Jefferson story, um, but even in other families, very often there were children that we could say were the product of rape, because if you were property, you cannot consent, but there were children born who were biologically the children of brothers, cousins, whoever it might be living at the, at the house. So not only are you selling property, you're selling your relatives. And I think that that's really important to sort of wrap our heads around. It's really important, Lindsay Sabados. And the other thing that's really important is when they began the White House, they, they positioned the White House so that it could be close to the 200 slaves that they could get free labor. Originally, the District of Columbia was going to hire people from Europe to help build the White House, but instead they said, oh, we have a good idea. Why don't we get it built for free right here between Virginia and Maryland? Yes. One aspect of uh, your talk, uh, Representative Sabadosa, that I was uh, uh, particularly interested in was that there were two presidents, two of the early presidents, who did not own slaves. It was John Adams and John Quincy Adams yes. from Massachusetts. They said they didn't believe in slavery, they didn't own slaves, and they would not become enslavers. I thought that would have had more of an effect on the country and the presidents that followed than it did, but it didn't. It absolutely did not, no. I mean, I think that they were sort of viewed as uh, as the curmudgeons from Massachusetts, and um, really, if you look at the history... It was it was twelve presidents, and, and in fact, I, as I mentioned, the last president he did not own slaves while he was in office, but the last president who had been a former slave owner was Ulysses S. Grant, who, of course, was the general, the general for the North and the Civil War, uh, credited with the march to the sea. I guess yes. "credited" is the right word. Credited um, is always the right <laughs> word, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, I am wondering if you had some thoughts. Uh, after your talk, which was, of course, very, very well received and really appreciated uh, at College Church last Sunday, uh, about something you had learned that you didn't expect that somehow changed your perspective about slavery and what is the next topic that I want to bring up with you, which is reparations. But was this a project after which you said, wow, I really learned something It changed me in some way, or you just knew this? No, I, I think the thing that really changed for me, I, I mean, I always suspected that the 
presidents had slaves. I mean, when you start to visit the pres- former presidential homes, you see that there are slave quarters, and they're starting to talk about that a little bit more. In fact, um, we went to Arlington Cemetery, and the house there was the former house of Robert E. Lee. But I remember going in in maybe middle school, and no one talked about that. No one talked about that that was his former house, that there were slave quarters. Now you can visit the slave quarters. They talk about the people who actually lived there, what happened to them um, after the war. And I think that's important for for us and for our kids to see because it's just simply part of what happened. I I think I get frustrated when people don't want to talk about history because history is just a story. It's the story of the past. So what is so terrifying about that? It it should just be um, commonplace that we learn these things and understand all the nuance that went into the decision making. But I think the thing that really struck me that I didn't know about and I did talk about in the speech were um, were the draft riots that happened in the North during the Civil War. And I have to say, I loved my high school history teacher. He was absolutely fabulous. He would lecture and make us read primary source text and really pushed us. But we never learned about this. And there was still, I think, very much this narrative that the North was anti-slavery and the South was pro-slavery. And we had to do this to save the Union and stop slavery. And, um, And I don't think anyone really talked about not everybody felt that way. Well, talk talk about the draft riots. So the draft riots, there was a draft during the Civil War. Uh, people were, um, everybody's making faces, so I, I don't know if you can hear me. <laughs> I just think the microphone keeps cutting, the microphones keep cutting in and oh, out. No, so. no, we're hearing no. We're okay. okay, okay, good. <laughs> All right. Well, that, that was some insight into what it's like here in the studio this morning. <laughs> so uh, the draft, there was a draft during the Civil War. People were being asked uh, to go and fight. And, of course, it was a, a long, drawn-out war with a lot of deaths. And so um, around 1863 in New York, there was a group of individuals that stormed the local draft office um, and then attacked black residents of New York City because they blamed them. They said, the only reason that we're being called to fight in this war is because of you. Like, why don't you go and fight? Of course, there were black soldiers who did fight in the Civil War, but irrespective, these rioters burned down the draft draft office. They destroyed businesses, schools, and uh, killed about 119 black individuals in New York City. And these riots were not unique. That was one really potent example of what happened, but they did happen throughout the country. And I felt really um, shortchanged that we had never learned about that in school. The other thing we never learned about was, um, and we sort of talk about how uh, the amendment, the the, um, 13th Amendment was passed, and uh, the 13th, 14th, 15th, and then uh, black people were given the right to vote in the United States. A thing that I learned that I did not know was that states in the North prior had, on the state level, held ballot initiatives to try to enfranchise black voters, and they were voted down time and time and time again. There had been a whole strategy leading up to the passage of those amendments, and I think it it does speak to the fact that even though I think slavery was becoming politically distasteful, and I'm, I'm phrasing it in this way for a reason, like that, there was that level of, we don't think this is good anymore, we should change it, but it didn't actually mean that there was a, there was a real political push toward equality and toward ending racism and toward coexisting in society. And in fact, you see both Presidents Lincoln and certainly President Johnson, who really didn't think that people should coexist in society. And President Johnson is fascinating. So I also recommend reading more about him. One aspect of feeling shortchanged in high school history classes 
that I felt shortchanged about when I learned about this later was the way in which the North recruited soldiers who were people arriving on ships. They went directly from the ship to the Union Army, um, perhaps knowing nothing about the war they were about to fight and die in. I mean, this idea the North is good and the South was bad, uh, I think credits the North too much and shortchanges in some ways President Lincoln, who somehow coalesced the North to fight a war over something in some ways, yes, uh, anti-slavery, but is also to, pres <coughs> to preserve the Union, a kind of uh, amorphous thought in some ways. Right. Uh, while we're talking about high school, I was raised in Atlanta, Georgia, and in 1964, my history teacher was Mr. Harwood, who said, it's a lie that the, the Union won. That was propaganda. The generals thought that they had lost, but in fact, the Confederacy was winning, and we should not have given up. That was in 1964 to impressionable young people like me. Wow. So, I, I did not hear that in high school, but that no, was No, but you weren't raised in Atlanta, no. Georgia. Um, yeah, well, in fact, uh, the decision to uh, uh, surrender uh, at Appomattox was not as clear as the history books might said, mm -hmm. might have said or did say. Um, the, the, South, the South's armies were running out of food. They were hungry. Um, and that was the real motivating factor. It wasn't that they had lost a war, uh, a battle that they could not uh, recover from, but their supplies were in dire shape. And that was why uh, Lee surrendered, really, at that point. I I'd like to know this, uh, Representative Sabadosa. Uh, there, has, there is an uh, effort uh, in Amherst. There's an effort in Northampton with regard to reparations. I serve on that commission. Great honor to have been appointed to it. Um, there is also a bill in the legislature pending now uh, for the study of reparations. And I'm wondering whether you think that bill is apt to receive favorable consideration. It's not for reparations, and neither is actually the commission in Northampton, nor in Amherst for that matter, although there are specific recommendations now from the Amherst Commission. That said, it's for the study of reparations. Um, it's a fraught word in some, in some quarters, but I think it's the right word because it's the nationwide movement. So what, what are your thoughts about the possibility that we will have a statewide commission to study reparations? I, I, don't, I don't really know. I mean, I think that there are certainly pockets of the legislature where um, the idea is discussed, and I think that there are people who, who don't understand it at all. Um, and I just to be very blunt, I think that's where we are. We're sort of in this divided, this bifurcated uh, moment where there is a lot of confusion about the term. And I don't think all communities across the state, in fact, I'm quite certain not all communities across the state are having conversations like Northampton and Amherst that sometimes makes it hard to go to the state house because you hear so much here and then you go there and people say, what are you talking about? Nobody in my community is is having that conversation. So I do think the legislature reacts when there is a bit more of a groundswell and there isn't quite that groundswell yet. Although I, I will also say, I mean, Heather McGee, um, who wrote, um, I'm going to say it was all of us, but I, the some of us, there we go, um, came to the legislature and she 
has written, I think, really beautifully about reparations, not only about why they're important, but how they could benefit all of us and how um, this this idea of lifting all boats. And and I think she's even quantified how much uh, reparations would pour into the economy, actually bolstering the U.S. economy. So with all of those things said, I think there are strong cases for reparation, I just don't think that that information has seeped into all corners of the legislature yet, and the idea does have to before it would move. And I also think that the title of the bill is right. It's to study reparations, not for reparations, because the underpinnings of any such effort uh, in whatever form it would take, I think is going to require a lot of education, Mm -hmm. a lot more understanding, and a greater appreciation of our history. We're going to continue our conversation with Representative Lindsay Sabadosa right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with State Representative Lindsay Sabadosa, representative for the 1st Hampshire District, which is comprised of Northampton and Four other communities, <laughs> five other communities. Uh, Chesterfield, Cummington, Goshen, Hatfield, Plainfield, Worthington, West Hampton, and Williamsburg. I will someday get the W's in alphabetical order. <laughs> Not today. Yeah, well, you know, we love it when when you'll do it in reverse alphabetical order by second letter. No, no, no I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, okay. No so, one wants to hear that. So, <laughs> that's probably well, true. Or even figure that out. <laughs> so, Representative Sabadosa, uh, we have just gone past the magic bewitching date of joint rule. Ten day. Joint Rule 10 Day. Okay, joint rule because it's a joint rule of the House and the Senate when committees which have have had hearings and have been considering bills report out they either as a practical matter kill the bill or advance the bill Mm -hmm. or in this this, particularly this year they give themselves an extension. Motion to extend uh, time for considering the bill granted. Thank you very much for uh, the committee grants it to itself, well, and it I goes will on. Say they didn't extend as much this year. There was a really? lo- there were there were a lot of decisions actually made by Joint Rule. Okay, Day. so let's not talk about those that are not advancing. Sure. Let's talk about the bills that are uh, apt to receive very serious consideration now by the legislature that you are particularly interested in. Yes. Well, I, I was I was really excited on Joint Rule Ten Day because three things moved forward that had not moved forward in the past. Um, and I think that they're really big bills and that bodes well. So one is uh, a bill that I filed for quite a long time, the full-spectrum pregnancy bill, and The Globe just did a great story about it. Um, it would eliminate copays and deductibles for all pregnancy-related care. And tell us the name of the title of the bill again. Uh, it's um, the Full-Spectrum Pregnancy Access Act. Okay. Um, and so... Eliminating copays and deductibles, and the reason for this is because it costs a lot of money to give birth, and a lot of people currently have very high deductible plans. So if you go in and you spend $8,000 at the hospital, but you have a $10,000 deductible, that means that you will be on the hook for those $8,000. And a lot of families have absolutely no idea. They think they're going to go in, and it's going to be like a copay. I don't think a lot of people... Uh, when they get pregnant, think, let me save up to pay the hospital for giving birth. They think, uh, where do I buy a bassinet? What is a bassinet? 
what is a diaper genie? These are the questions that I think most people are pondering um, and not necessarily how do we pay a hospital bill. And yet we um, we had great stories from, from local folks who talked about having to get a second job to pay off this debt, who put off having another child um, because it was just too expensive to actually physically go into a hospital and give birth. And so this bill would offer some relief. I think it it fits really nicely into the maternal health agenda that the governor has discussed. And of course, we see um, with hospital closures, particularly um, maternal health hospital wards closing, this being even more and more critical because we want to make sure that patients go and get all of the care that they need and that they don't put it off because of cost. Sounds like a good idea. The question, I guess, is, is there money? To do this well, the um, this would be it would be a bump in insurance premiums, but we had a report done. It would cost about twenty three cents a month uh, per premium, which at the end of the day is mm, I don't know is that like an eighth of a cup of coffee now? Got it. <laughs> there, thereabouts. Where are you we buying can't your even coffee? Say, uh, yeah, <laughs> just about anywhere. I think even at Big Y, it, it would be about an eighth of a cup. So um, this is a very small cost for I think what would for be a, a very, very big, very big, big and important impact. Right? Yes. Another bill or bills that you are particularly interested in and, and that are advancing? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, to stay on this maternal health theme, uh, we had the doula bill, which is still with healthcare financing, although we're hearing very positive things. Healthcare financing is not late. We just have an extra month to report bills. And that's because so many bills end up in healthcare financing after their first committee. If they cost money and relate to healthcare, they're probably going to come to this committee. And, and they're, and they're going to end up at Ways and Means. I mean, exactly. there's a legislative process. There's a process. When there's money involved, sure. it's complicated. Yes. And so the doula bill uh, is being implemented in part via Mass Health. So that means that you will be able to obtain doula coverage um, for both pre and postnatal care. And uh, if you are a mass health patient, however, we think that that is unfair, that everybody should be able to have access to this coverage. And so we also filed legislation this session for the first time asking that insurance also cover this. And uh, that bill moved forward as well. So I'm hoping that we can combine efforts and kind of an omnibus bill. Yeah, put together an omnibus bill or, you know, included in the budget, included in whatever we like to say moving vehicle is going forward uh, and and try to get this available for citizens. So you sound pretty you actually sound optimistic about I, these two I, bills. I think, you know, we're in a really good place. We passed part of the full-spectrum pregnancy bill last year, um, so we have more to do, but we'll keep we'll keep chipping away at it. I think well, we'll three is a magic number. Want to give us one more bill that you're particularly <laughs> interested in? Um, sure. Uh, there was also a piece of legislation that moved forward, and this was brought to me by a constituent who rides paratransit on the PVTA about a writer's bill of rights. And this was just making sure that paratransit riders have the same rights as regular bus riders, this access to the same services, and that they feel like they are treated with respect and dignity. So we're very excited about that. Well, given that the MBTA had to put this, lost all power yesterday <laughs> or the day I was before. not paratransit, <laughs> and that is a different uh, conversation. Can you okay. very quickly just tell us what paratransit is? A paratransit is for um, riders who might have disabilities or are otherwise unable to use a regular PDBTA service and need more routine pickups and drop-offs. Representative Lindsay, Representative Lindsay Sabadosa, thanks so much for being with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.